a Podcast One production. Back in 1998, a very unusual toy came to market called the Furby. The Furby was unusual because it had a small computer running inside it, and it gave it kind of the semblance of inner life. It might be thinking, it might be feeling, it might be listening and responding, it might be learning and growing. It's always hard to tell from the outside whether that's truly happening or it's a reasonable fake. Now, in this case, it was mostly fake, but it was good enough to fool the intended market, kids. Kids loved Furby. It became the hot Christmas gift that year. Nearly two million of them were sold. And that got Sherry Turkle thinking. Now, Sherry's a researcher at MIT, and she spent her career studying how computers shape the minds and emotions of children. So she gave children Furby to play with. And after two weeks, she asked those children a series of questions. The key question seems, on the surface, really quite simple. Is Furby more like your dog, or is it more like your doll? But actually, that's a very subtle interrogation, because between the ages of four and six years old, children work out the difference between the quick and the dead. It becomes one of the categories through which they understand the world, and Turkle wanted to know which category they put the Furby into. And you know what the kids said? Neither. It's not like my dog. It's not like my doll. It's something else. They didn't have language for it, but they instinctively knew that Furby sat in another category, a new category somewhere between the living and the dead. Those kids were way ahead of their parents in understanding this new world, a world that was already shaping their minds. Good day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. And on this third series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this episode, we take a look at how our interactions with our machines shape the way we think, feel, and behave. There are a few topics as important or as close to us. We're going inside the machine to have a look around at us on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. There are some truly lovely lines from Ian Foster's novel, Howard's End. One of the central characters makes a public plea that sounds both quaint and these days a bit on the nose. Only connect. That was the whole of her sermon. Only connect the prose and the passion and both will be exalted. And human love will be seen at its height. Live in fragments no longer. Only connect. It's easy to imagine those words coming from Fiona Kerr. <laughs> Anthropologist, neuroscientist, and someone who understands in both the cultural and biological frames why we must only connect. Fiona, welcome to the next billion seconds. Thank you. All right, let's start at the beginning. Why do we connect? Well, we're 
electrochemical bags made to connect, basically. <laughs> How romantic that is, isn't it? After you've just <laughs> no, you've just taken all the mystery out of it. Uh, but what she said was absolutely beautiful. So, so I guess I almost think of us as, as exactly that, as walking, talking sensors um, around connectivity. And it's, it's to our environment because we are also aesthetic animals, um, people, but we're massively connecting um, to humans so we're and to, to other animals to other sentient beings if you like as well because um, we are very much um, well we're social animals and we need it to be healthy and happy and feel a sense of belonging and so that becomes critical neurophysiologically as well so we're very much driven um, by happiness and health to connect with other human beings. And in some ways we can see this because people who live their lives alone tend to live shorter lives than people who live their lives in connection and in community. So is this, in a sense, the physical manifestation of that, that in fact it does affect us? Yes, um, and physiological because, again, one cycles the other. And sometimes I use a picture when I'm speaking of two three-year-old brains and one is almost half the size of the other. And the reason for that is, is the, the bigger brain is the three-year-old who has been loved and touched and stimulated and held and taught and has all sorts of um, experiences as well because it's actually one of the ways that you build your brain. Mm -hmm. And the other child has been profoundly neglected. And so that gets into, immediately gets into how does our brain work? So what our brain does is we prune all the time. Our brains are work in progress and so think about it like that. So we constantly prune neurons and probably about one a second. We also are plastic. So we change the way that the, um, the, the brain works um, and what it pays attention to. And we can grow brand new brain. So when we're stimulating that three-year-old, and or it could be an older person that you leave on their own, you know, in, a, in an aged care centre, um, then what happens is they still keep pruning, but the growing of the new brain doesn't happen because there's no stimulation. So it's like cutting a bush back that has stopped growing and eventually you're not going to have a lot of bush. That's right. So white areas and grey areas of matter shrink and you actually get a smaller brain and so you get physical differences but they of course have massive chemical um, interactions with the rest of your body so you get parts of your body that don't work as well. So it's a neurophysiological impact on us. So we really do shrink from the world. Old. And there's never really a time from the moment that we come out of the womb where this isn't the case, right? I mean, I just spend a lot of time around a four-day-old baby, which was absolutely <laughs> lovely. And you could tell even at four days old when he was just kind of sort of cluing into things, he was still trying to look at you, trying yep. to look around, trying to connect. That, that was kind of the thing, other than the fact that he would get cranky if he got hungry or something like that or needed to be changed. But the other thing he was doing besides sort of monitoring his own internal state was trying to connect with the world around him. Well, it's, it's and yes, absolutely. In fact, even before you come out. Um, so what you're, you're seeing, the reason, one of the reasons babies sleep so much is because their brain is working massively hard. They've actually got loads, billions and billions of neurons. And so really think about the way that the brain works is you've got, you've got lots of neurons and then it's the connections between the neurons um, that create the shape and the capacities and the chunks of knowledge and capability in the brain, how it differentiates out. And for the first three years, everything that the child sits on, looks at, 
puts in their mouth, hears, helps, it, it washes, um, uh, well, their brain is washed with things called BDNF. It's a chemical that helps to grow these connections. And so it, they're like sponges and it just maps into their brain. And even day one, what they're doing is they're looking at you because when you, so a baby looks at you for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's about five major things going on when your baby's gazing at you. Um, one of the things to think about is is the focal length. It, it's actually designed. So when you're holding a baby and looking at a baby, mm. so if, say if you're feeding them, um, it's designed to be about that length. And... So you've got their pleasure centers going off. You've got high levels of oxytocin. You've got their areas in their whole socio-emotional aspect, which is designed to connect with you physically. Right. Because we should, we should say for the benefit of the listeners, oxytocin is popularly known as the love hormone. Exactly. I mean, it's yeah, that's a little drug. yeah, <laughs> it, that, that's a, that's a, that's a little too simple. But it's something that, yeah. that the brain produces when you're in that state of of, of being in love with yes and connecting with. So yeah. they've actually got oxytocin and dopamine, vasopressin, they've got levels of serotonin that increase. There's masses I could bore you with. Um, but the other thing is we, we neurally synchronize. So we physically send signals mm. to each other's brains. Mm-hmm. And we also resonate in the same space. So even you and I sitting here now, we are exchanging a large number of chemicals between us in the space. Mm-hmm. So you get one lot of connectivity when you're looking at each other. You get another lot of connectivity when you're sharing space which is why we like to just go and sit with other people mm. and and you know to conspire experience. to breathe together yes because we're actually it's why women's uh, hormones equilibrate it's why when you hold a baby your cortisol levels equilibrate all sorts of things so it's, it's funny because i remember i fed the four-year-old bottle right mm-hmm. But uh, pardon me, the four-day-old, and and I'm sitting there and I'm trying to sort of balance the four-day-old and the bottle, and also realize that he's actually checking in with me yeah. as as he's eating. I mean, it was a complicated thing that was going on between the two of us. But at the same time, and there are photos of this, I have this enormous grin on my yeah. face, right? That there was something enormously relaxing. That that yeah. cortisol level, that 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 tension level was goes dropping, down. and your oxytocin level goes up. Mm. So one of the things to think about, and I try not to do it in a creepy way, but I ever see um, it, it really worries me watching um, say um, a mum feeding mm-hmm. and they've actually got a title for it now it's called brexting so they're feeding uh, and they're looking texting. at their text yeah. So just think about it really simply in terms of your, when you're looking at that child, you've still got touch, so that's a massive vector of communication. But when you're not looking at the child, there's a number of things that don't go on because they only happen with retinal eye lock. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's in that baby's brains that's stopped when you're looking at your phone. And if I ever say it, they go, oh my God, and they don't look at it again. But it's just that no one's telling them this stuff. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons that I look at both the neuroscience science and the technology, because I'm also an engineer. But in a lot of ways, we haven't really had that, you know, smartphones are very new. And before Mm -hmm. that, maybe someone would have looked at a feature phone to check a text. But the smartphone is the thing that is the real sort of alluring thing. And and I remember I had a a similar moment to this where I was watching a mom who had a child who was probably like a one-year-old toddler in uh, a pram. Mm-hmm. And she was crossing the, uh, a busy street mm-hmm. yep. at the, at the signal. All right, but because she was looking at her phone, she kept on trying sort of to miss the curb and nearly dumped the child out. Now the child was strapped in, so it did not yep. end up on the pavement, but was so involved in looking at the device that 
she was effectively ignoring what was going on with her child. And I had this moment going, if this is actually getting into and it's interfering with the maternal instinct, which is among the strongest that we yes, have, yes. what's actually going on with that? Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that we're learning more and more with, with one of the positive things about technology is it actually lets you look at what's happening mm. more and more. Um, so with, with my work, I look at what's happening in your brain. I also look at what's happening in your body. How are your chemicals changing when you're interacting with technology compared to interacting with humans? Mm-hmm. And it's quite different. There are parts of your brain that never turn on if I look at you over a screen. And they only turn on if I look at you face to face. Um, and there are certain chemicals. Of course, we can't get that chemical resonance because we're not in the same space. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about the distraction element. So that addiction we get to the dopamine spike and to being distracted. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the problems about distraction is it, it stops us looking up and out and thinking about what we're doing. So it narrows our focal point a lot. It, and it, it, because it distracts us, it also stops us being good at problem solving. So it lowers willpower and it also lowers your, basically your common sense, your capacity to think about the consequences of what you're doing in that moment. So it's why you'll put your child at risk. It's why people die by going and getting their phone off a rail track. Right. Um, or you know. checking a message while they're actually driving, driving yes, which exactly. happens all of the time. Yeah. And I, I don't drive a lot. And when I was in America and driving, I had to remember, I had to completely sort of just beat it into myself, put the phone down. The phone is not used while you're driving. Yeah. Right. And I think if I drove a lot, I would sort of have, have relearned that lesson. Yeah. And I guess we come into that, that part of that discussion becomes but the whole thing about when you give your children um, the screen and why you give your children the screen. And I'm not, I, I want to absolutely say I'm not against technology. I absolutely love technology when you use it properly. So that's always the stuff around, you know, how do you use it well? Because one of the things that you notice more and more, or um, I notice more and more, is is using the technology as a um, basically as a soporific or as a... It's I like mean, a dummy. Just, it is, yeah. yeah. And one of the problems now is it's not just to make a child quiet when a child's fussing. Quite often a child wants to... More often than not, they want to interact with the parent. It's mm. because we now have a generation of parents mm. who are addicted to doing quite often dumb stuff on their phone um, for that distraction process. And so what they want is peace to do that. So they'll just stop any other distraction and that includes their child wanting to interact with them or their dog there's wonderful YouTubes now <laughs> of dogs stealing the phone and going away and burying it um, it's brilliant and if a dog can work out <laughs> that this is spirited yeah, away the right. soul of yes. my owner and therefore I must separate yeah, it from him then, then goodness gracious um, so there's a lot of them <laughs> right okay so if we're in this world now where we have to be aware of distraction and we need to be aware of distraction as a sort of fundamental sort of force that's in- interfering with all of our relations, how do we bring that front and center for us so that when we're engaging with an infant or with a child or with a lover or with a, yep. how do we keep that front of mind for us? How do we maintain that awareness in a world that consistently wants us to be more and more distracted? Yes. So we have to manage it. 
Um, we have to be very active in understanding what happens when you choose, when you make a choice. Um, there's a talk I give that I, I ask people last time they were standing in a coffee line, you know, what mm -hmm. did they do? Did they talk to someone? Did they daydream out of the look out of a window or did they pick their device up? And let's look at what happens to your brain in mm. all of these three. When you're, um, no matter where you are, you have to think about what do I want out of this process? So... I often get the discussion around how do I get the child or how do I get the teenager or whatever to put their phone down um, when we're having dinner. Well, you tell them to put the phone down. <laughs> um, but one of the problems is very often the, the adults got the phone, as mm -hmm. you've said. Um, so what we need to do is be very mindful, much more mindful of what the positives are of connecting with another human being and how that does grow our brains and our bodies and our capability um, and then what doesn't work anymore when we pick up the technology why we pick the technology up and because it is built to be sticky and because everything's built for eyes on screen then you as a commodity you need to be very aware of the fact that that's going to happen unless you learn to stop it happening so putting those rules in place you know having the no no screens at tables having the i think there's a i probably won't say it there's a brand at the moment even on a tv that's got an advert that has i think they have um family time where you press the button and the the router in the in the house actually stops so that you're off air, you know, that kind of stuff. That you've unplugged. Um, you've you've unplugged, unplugged, yeah. Um, so those sort of things are what you have to wrap it around. So I had a game on my, my phone that I'd started to think, oh, that would be nice, and I took it off because as soon as I realised I was going to go to that instead of thinking or doing something else, then I'd, I get rid of it before it's too late. <laughs> So a few weeks ago, I was at my cafe and my cafe is right around the corner from my house and I go there pretty much first thing in the morning and I'd left the house without my smartphone. So there was nothing to do while they were mm -hmm. brewing me my cup. And I was like, all right, oh my God, I will deal with this situation. I'll, I'll look around. <laughs> and it turns out that I was really glad I did that because there was a beautiful rainbow in the sky mm -hmm. that I got to stare at for a couple of minutes. And it was a double rainbow. It was the whole sort of full show. And it reminded me that I need to look up and I need to look out because there's this wonder and this mystery and this magic in the world that if you're just looking down, yes. you don't see. Now, you've actually done work to help us get back into that looking up position. Yeah. Um, last year, I was um, doing an event with a person called Lecky Mays and uh, we were actually looking at enlightenment. I was speaking at her event and afterwards we were thinking, oh, what would we like to do? And I'd just come back, I think, from the US and I'd just been writing on um, distraction and how it stops something called abstraction, which is what happens in your brain when you look up. Mm. It's that lovely capacity of your brain to go off and play and cross-connect things and cre be creative, the aha moment, you know, mm -hmm. um, that doesn't happen. But as soon as you're distracted, you, you stop abstraction. And it was just, oh, I just wish that people would understand better um, how looking up changes you f sort of positively. And I think I'd done a TEDx look into my eyes because one of the things that concerns me is is teenagers thinking, yeah, but, but this is now how we connect. You know, right. connecting by technology is the same. No, it's not. There's so many chemicals that you don't get. There's so much of your brain that doesn't turn on. Um, I, I use technology all the time to connect. I'm absolutely not saying that you don't do it. It's, right, it's not a binary here. No, that's right. Um, but the easy way to think about that is, is if I was told that 
I would never again be able to connect with my kids <laughs> on anything except Skype. You know, we automatically know that that's not the same. So anyway, we decided that um, with the science around why you look up, why you abstract, why you connect with other people and what happens to us and how wonderful it is for us and our society and our whole sort of world, um, we we went together with the Outdoor Media Association who put up big posters, I think about 7,000 around the country. And so I wrote a science paper and Leckie made it look absolutely beautiful. We, we put them together and and it was um, it's the art and science of looking up, um, which is free. You can download it. And we'll um, put a link to that on the website. Yeah. And it looks at even before you talk. So what happens when you're on your own? And when you're looking up, why do you get that lovely, wow, what's that? You know, that's a rainbow. I wonder how a rainbow works. And off your brain goes. Um, And it grows your brain because you get these beautiful chemicals that start to happen. And you get this extrapolative capability in your brain that you don't get when you're not doing that. So it it actually allows you to, to change your... If you like your worldview, it actually gets you to be more long lens. And if you're with someone as well, between looking up and looking at the other person, if you're thinking about something complex, if you had something, someone next to you and you went, do you know how a rainbow works? And they, were, they started to talk to you about it. Then because you get different chemicals from each of those things, it allows our brain to go into a complex problem-solving mode that we don't get otherwise. So we actually get really good at thinking about things with a very different um, sort of, uh, you know, long, long-term um, view. And the other really interesting thing about looking out is, it sounds counterintuitive, but it allows you to look in. So one of the reasons why, um, say, meditators are so good at being able to actually physically and genetically, epigenetically change their brains and their bodies and how they cope with emotion and compassion is because they spend a long time allowing themselves to get in touch with who they are. And one of the interesting things about constantly being distracted by technology is we don't do that self-reflection very much. And in fact, people I talk to end up saying, oh, I don't think I'd like to do that. I think I'd rather, you know, be distracted. I might not like what I see. Well, that's exactly what we have to do. Because once you come to terms with you as you, and you actually like the person you are, you're not dependent on the other type of like that you keep wanting that to get. That other type of validation. Yes, yes. You don't actually need it nearly as much because you're self-comfortable. That's a terrible way to put it, but but you're comfortable with who you are and you don't get that, that self-reflective space unless you're looking up and, and abstracting and daydreaming. In fact, daydreaming is the set mode for the brain. We automatically go into abstractive mode, which is where the brain starts to cross-connect in all sorts of ways it doesn't normally connect in. And we're back on the next billion seconds talking to Dr. Fiona Kerr. Okay, so Fiona, we've got this idea that the machines are there and we sort of have to avoid the lore of the machines. But then there's this other aspect, which is that we're building robots and AI systems that we are also designing for our interaction to make them easy to use, easy for us to understand. 
What do we need to keep in mind about how we change when we interact with those kinds of machines that are really designed probably to help us, not just to sneer us, but to actually help us? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So we could, there's loads of things to the answer. So one of the big things, if we go meta and then we can go lower, one of the big things to keep in mind is what is the question? What is the use of this? What is the thing where actually, what is the opportunity or what's the problem? And the second step is, is technology going to be useful in that? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not because there are things that humans are uniquely good at. You know, when someone's upset, um, another human being picking them up if they're tiny or looking at them if they know them and they're an adult will change their physiology very efficiently and effectively. Um, You can change immune systems as a nurse, where a robot nurse is not going to do that. So understanding those kind of, um, again, the biophysical nature of the interaction between humans and technology is critical. So some of this hypothetical future where we're going to have these robot carers to take care of us when we're old, (laughs) it's not going to be the kind of panacea that people are imagining it because we won't get from it the things that we actually substantially need. Yes. So it's a case of, again, understanding. So one of the things I try and do, so I now have a small niche institute and what we're looking at quite specifically is when is basically, hum- when is the human better? So when, when, what are we more effective and efficient at? And we are, we've just been talking about how massively efficient we are at, at changing the other person's brain and body and at changing our own brain and body and at creating this positive interaction and and we can do that at scale. You know, humans can actually have positive contagion and we can have negative effects as well on each other. But then there's, when is when is technology better? And 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 as a as an engineer, I'm on two robotics um, projects right now, um, because it is it's just transformative if you use technology for positive reasons. So again, we get back to what's the question, um, and then when is the combination of the two? best. So a quality partnership between humans and technology is absolutely awesome. Okay, so what are the qualities that we need to look for to let us know that that partnership is working? Because I agree with you. I mean, a lot of people are very much afraid of the robot. I'm seeing something where it's much more of a partnership, but we have to be able to have some, I guess, if not a checklist, how do we develop that sense for what's working and what's not working? One of the things is, is being better educated around the advantages of both human interaction and what the technology can give us. Um, and I'm not even talking about things like, you know, medical technology, sort of nanotech for cancer. Those things are just, it's fantastic. Um, but if we're talking about the interactive robotic kind of things, so wh- one of the projects I'm just about to to get going in is looking at a small robot, which is like a, um, like a small child. So it's very cute. People like it. And so we tend to anthropomorphize around it. And so what I'm going to be doing is actually looking at the brain of the person in an aged or a healthcare situation when they interact with the robot, but also looking at the brain when they interact with a human trusted carer and look at the difference. And then the second phase is looking at the difference over time. So what is it? Is there, is there ever a situation where the robot can can do all of those, turn on all of those parts of the brain that the human can. It looks like that's not the case, but that actually isn't an issue. So I'm constantly frustrated by us trying to make a robot 
do what a human can do, you know, the emotional robot, the robot. We are fabulously built to do that. So what we need to do is, is use the robot for the things that humans aren't good at. So the little robot will be fantastic in watching if someone falls, in, com- in letting them know that they haven't eaten the right food, in playing chess with them, in calling their mum or their, their daughter, in, you know, all of those kind of things. But when that person is, um, is, has em- emotional elevation, right? So when they're particularly happy or they're sad or they're depressed or they're in pain, so somatic elevation, then they need a human Right. Because so, because that's when our empathy plays in, where we yes. can recognize when another person is in pain because we know what that feels like. We have an interior sense of that. We do. And because we actually resonate and synchronize, <laughs> um, if you are... So a beautiful example is if you are in pain and, and I'm the person, I'm the carer that you know, then when you see me and we get what's called retinal eye lock, mm. then parts of our brain synchronize... And there are chemicals that go between us very, very quickly. And I get, I get good ones as well. That's why carers feel good when they care because we get the dose as well as, as you. And I can actually change the way your, your affect is, um, is my, so the, I can change the way that your brain is working. I can lower your tension. Mm-hmm. I can uh, help you to feel the pain less. Yeah, I actually drop your pain levels. I increase your um, your immune system kicks in. I decrease the the um, cortisol and the adrenaline. I settle down the cortisol receptors in your body as another human being. So it's not that we don't use the tech. It's the fact that in that situation, the tech can be really, if, if I fall over, say, if, um, then the tech can immediately tell the human that they're needed. So, so it dismays me that we've got things like, we've got a robot called the last minute robot. And I was, I can remember being on a, uh, we we're on an Adobe panel and there was technologists from around the place. And we were arguing about um, would you like a robot to hold your hand when you die? And and that's a question I often ask people, and I haven't actually met anyone that said no. I, I'm one of the people there said, oh, it's better than nothing. And I said, well, is it? Because what that denotes is that as a society, we have decided that's okay. And what the last minute robot does is it, it looks like a sort of a TV on, on legs and it's got like a little ironing board arm. And it puts... It's, it's little ironing board on your arm and goes, there, there. <laughs> and that's it. And that's just so creepy because <laughs> what we're saying is we won't even give you the last 10 minutes with a human. Yeah. Yet we know that the, the capacity in that 10 minutes to change yeah. the experience of that dying person is massive. And having held someone's hand as they passed... From my point yes. of view, it was all, it's also one of the singular sublime moments in my own life. Exactly. So it's not that you're, this person is taking something because they're leaving the world. It's that they're sharing something because they're at that incredible moment of transition. Yeah. Yes. And it also lets us say goodbye and it lets us be at peace yeah. because it has, again, we're still synchronizing with that human being. We are still two sentient people um, with empathic capacity. Um, we can show if people are unconscious, they are still massively connecting with us. It's beautiful. So let's take this into some other areas. You've done work with military organizations mm-hmm. to sort of help them understand what happens as they start using more technology and more robots yep. 
to provide either defensive or offensive capabilities. How are they starting to frame this so that even if they're starting to boot soldiers up into things that are more capable, they basically don't produce monsters out of that? Yeah, so so what um, we're looking at is how the connection between humans, especially in real-time dramatic situations where you have to make complex decisions quickly, um, and especially if it's moral decisions, um, ethical decisions, um, w- is it going to be different if you only have technology with you or if you have other human beings around you? And that gets into the whole fascinating area of how our brain works to do with complex problem solving. Mm-hmm. So when it's a complex problem has missing bits of information, right? Unknown unknowns. So what the brain does is say, okay, there's stuff here that I don't have. So before I go out to get brand new information, because the brain is super efficient, but very lazy. Um, what I'll do first is I'll go back and I'll recull all of the data in my mind. But when you have another human being, because of the way that empathic engagement turns on a different type of, of culling process, if you like, um, and it's to do with discernment, the, the, the basis on which we look for data becomes more long lens and it becomes more consequential. So we actually look for different information as valid. If there are other people there. Yes, if we've interacted with another human being. And we also, um, we tend to push out the the whole requirement. So it's not just what do I want right here, right now. It becomes much more what's going to happen if, if we, so that long lens capacity, you know, instead of the short termism is one of the aspects that we get when we directly interact with people dealing with a complex problem. When the question that we're asking is a human centric question, you know, how do we make this better? How do we get a good result for a person or for mankind or whatever out of this instead of how do we make a profit here, which is a very different driver in the use of technology. So to loop this back into what we were talking about in the first half of the show, there's this sense here that as much as technology can be an amplifier, mm-hmm. it can also be a stupidifier. Oh, totally. Yes. By helping us to focus our minds in ways that actually don't give us the best use of what we have. Yes. So an easy way to think about it is we talked about the fact that our brains are a work in progress. Um, and you shape your brain very much depending on what you pay attention to. So if you pay attention to, if you just get distracted, then what you don't pay attention to is something which is going to expand your knowledge, um, to grow your your to chunks of capability that you've got in your brain. So if all you do is you pay attention to things that are kind of, you know, dumb, then you grow, you grow a dumb brain. Um, you, you really stop um, increasing that capability and the things that distract you become the things that are really interesting. Right. I mean, you are what you eat and that's not just true in terms of the physical food that you're eating, but all of the mental food that you're eating Absolutely. as well. And it is very hard, as we've said. We love, one of the, the things about technology is it's takes advantage, no, sorry, technology is neutral. (laughs) When some people, so we have allowed some of the large drivers of tech design that make profit out of distracting us Mm. 
to maximise the distraction through technology. So it takes advantage of the fact that we have peripheral vision that we pay attention to things in. So it's why all the bright, shiny, lighty stuff is at the edges. And we will automatically look at that because that's how humans are built. And so what happens is we do get pulled all the time towards that sort of thing. And so there's a... There's a, a lovely guy in Oxford, um, and we were talking the last time we were there. He's actually ex-Google. And and I guess both of us in different parts of the world were kind of talking about the same thing, which was it's not always about, um, you know, about Big Brother. Sometimes it's the Huxley stuff. It's the brave new world. So, yes, we've got security problems and issues and worries about how our data is used and stolen and, and sequestered. But the other aspect that always has fascinated me is the problem of desire. So what we desire controls us is basically what, what Huxley was on about. And there is absolutely right. If you can get, just like you'd give the child the, the phone to shut them up, we use technology. We allow technology all the time to do that to us because we just use it um, in the way that it's, it's served up to us. Instead of us, you know, expanding our minds, we go down the tunnels that are built by algorithms. And instead of looking for sort of depth in good answers, we take what is shaped for us and served to us, sometimes for bad reasons, sometimes for good. And we don't question that. And we, and we would then end up being infantilized by all of this if it's all coming to you predigested, if it's all coming to you to basically entrance you and to keep you away from depth. That depth is one of the processes that separate children from adults, right? Children haven't had time to reflect or space to reflect. Adults theoretically have had time to reflect, space to reflect, and have developed depth as a result. So what we're talking about then are a technological kind of culture that is not just staring us away from depth, but as a result means that we have a generation of people who won't have any native capacity. So does that then mean that we could be heading to a period where the kinds of thought that we need to have to manage an increasingly complex culture become increasingly hard for us to maintain because we're simply not that used to it? I actually think we're already there. So there's so much in what you've just said. Um, children are actually really good at depth but one of the problems is if we keep them too busy and don't allow them to do the extrapolation by lying on the lawn and building stuff with their hands so we've got all sorts of issues now around um, studies that look at kids who when they go to school they can't even build blocks and it's because they've got the screen and what happens when you're young is is you're, you build this physics engine in your head, you know, by dropping things and by turning things around, you learn how to do 3D visualisation and that helps with maths. It's, it's really quite complex. But you don't build that unless you physically do things in 3D and learn those physical requirements. Because they're as much in your body as they are exactly. anything you're learning in it's, your head. Yes, very much. So we learn with all of our body. Um, and But they're quite good at depth, but we distract them. And sometimes adults, they don't actually get deep, they get quite narrow <laughs> Um, but, but in theory, yes, you're absolutely, most of the time you're right. What we do, should do is build up wisdom. We should build up these chunks of knowledge over the years. And that goes to what your question is. So peep some, a couple of weeks ago, I was on something and the, the person said to me, but I feel much smarter with my phone because if I want to look at um, string theory, then I just look it up. And I said, okay, tell me now about string theory. You've, you've looked it up. 
and she couldn't tell me. And I said, and what does that mean about um, dark matter? And what does that mean about um, uh, entanglement? And what does that mean? And of course it was, I said, but because what you've done is because we outsource <laughs> our, our growing knowledge sort of as a chunk that we keep at expert, as expertise and we just outsource that to the phone so that we can look up something. We don't actually keep it. We don't build that in our brains as a, a resource. And they're called chunks. They are technically called chunks. It's the way that our memory works. When we learn something, we build it in. And the more we build, the more it's like a 3D spider web of kind of interconnected knowledge. It's beautiful. And they sit in our brains, which is why masters and experts at something, they just know. And all of that comes up at once, at about a sixth of a second, it goes bang, whenever you want to do something. You don't build that because you you haven't taken the the time to make the effort for the brain to actually build that structure. Instead, it's been allowed to just skate across the top of something, not actually take the, the information in, because that's a work. Your brain won't work unless you make it. Um, and so we don't build that. And I think that, that one of the things... So I, I, in Finland, I've advised their steering committee on their artificial intelligence program, and I look at a number of sort of aspects... And trends across the world. So what's causative, what's correlative? One of the things that fascinates me is the fact that over the last now 15 years, we've often used technology for dealing with, for talking to other people about deep, complex problems. And is that related to the rise in short-termism at every level of our society? And we go back to the work, which is actually in Finland, around what doesn't turn on in your brain when all you're doing is looking at people across a screen. Because there are, there are areas of that empathic engagement that draw you into that long lens consequentialism that don't happen. And if you add that to the lack of people just stopping and thinking and having that wide view, that long lens um, themselves, because they're go to their phone whenever they're tired. We think it, it's, it's nice and we have a break when we pick something up and play a game. We're actually increasing the, the cognitive fatigue when we do that sort of thing. So, yeah, we have to be very mindful of how we use it. And I really worry that we're already confusing. I, I really disagree with, yeah, but it makes kids smarter. No, it doesn't. All right. Final question. <laughs> so... People who listen to this podcast probably on their smartphones and we've sort of made them worry a little bit. And, <laughs> and, you know, I think probably one of the good things about the smartphone is it leaves you free to look up and look out. Mm -hmm. And certainly when I'm listening to podcasts, if it's a good podcast, my head is actually exploding with ideas. So hopefully that's a good sign. But the next time that they pick up their smartphone and they stare down into it, what would you want them to be aware of as they're doing that? Okay. And in fact, that question, I've just... Um, just agreed with Nokia Bell Labs where that's one of the things we're exactly going to look at is how do we make a phone that is good for us. So that's really exciting. Hard to do, but really exciting. Um, and so what we need to think about is why are we using it? Um, so there are times that I won't rely on my smartphone. Um, I've got a, quite a good sense of direction. So I, there are times I will not use it to automatically be a map. Um, look at where you're getting the information from or look at it in a different way in terms of have you got more than one search engine, for example, on your smartphone? Um, look at how you get feeds. There are ways to turn off 
um, advert fees. There are ways to turn off tracking processes. So there are technical things on your phone that you can do that minimise you being tracked and maximise your capability to get really good information across different kinds of fields. But also... Don't load it up with all of those things, which you know will distract you. Um, Load it up with things that are going to remind you not to do that as well. So my son and I have a different pattern um, and I tend to have um, an app that stops me um, at night looking at the phone where I might, because you've got no willpower anymore, you're cognitively fatigued at night, you make dumb decisions like buying things on eBay. So that kind of stuff is off. You know, I can't do that. Whereas he's a PhD student and during the day he would get distracted. So his automatic um, programming on his phone stops him being able to surf during the day. Um, So you can use brilliant apps that allow you to manage what you need to do on that phone and how you need to do it. But you have to step back and say, what do I want out of today? Not even what do I want out of the tech because we're automatically assuming we're going to use the tech. So what do I want out of today? And then the second question is, is technology an enabler of what I want? And if it is, how is it going to enable me to do it? Then you use it in that way. And we really do get very good at it. I, I adore tech. We talked about podcasts. Um, you know, when we walk and we listen to a podcast, the fact that we're also physically walking, because we're built to, um, well, we're built to actually walk about 20 kilometers a day and solve complex problems in real time. So when we are listening to information on a podcast while we're walking, our brain is dancing. It's beautiful. You know, it's, it's doing all the things it should. It's, it's taking information it's looking at a an environment it's it's got physical movement we've got oxytocin and glucose from the movement so your brain's having a party it's great so it's not that we don't use tech we just use it well and i think now having left our brains dancing <laughs> thank you very much fiona care for being on the next billion seconds you're welcome Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about the way the machines we've made shape the way we think and feel? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In our next episode, we'll bring you the final in Series 3 of The Next Billion Seconds as we explore the human ethics of our work with technology. What questions do we need to be asking ourselves as we use these powerful new tools to shape our world, our experience, and ourselves? That's next time on The Next Billion Seconds. Thanks to Dr. Fiona Kerr for coming on our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.